Poland apologizes for accidentally invading the Czech Republic. Ethiopia and Egypt continue to fight over the limited water in the Nile River and a deep dive into the collapse of the Kingdom of Hawaii. This is the world at large, and we are Politics 1001. Boonga, 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 The world at large. Mm-hmm. What's going on, guys? My name is Ian. My name is Josh. We have a lot to talk about today, so let's just jump into it. Poland. What's going on there, Josh? Tell me. All right, yes. So, Poland and the Czech Republic have been going through a bit of a border dispute lately. Oh, no. Starting in late May, Polish troops kind of crossed over the border into the southern town of Pielzimo. Uh-oh. As you pronounce it in Polish. Please excuse my grammar. So... You're excused. The Polish troops crossed over and to an eastern Czech Republic province known as Morovia. Um, in history, this, prov- this part of the world was known as Silesia and Bohemia. Mm. Both were once uh, uh, independent nations. Mm. Um, but anyways, Polish troops crossed over the border in a small river. Um, according to the Polish foreign ministry, this was an accident. It occupied a piece of a land, including a chapel that was a, a Czech tourist site. Oh, so this was an accident. According to the Polish Foreign Ministry, Czech citizens were going to visit this part of the country and visit the chapel because, well, that's what you do in a tourist (laughs) site. And Polish troops were telling them to stay 10 meters back and they weren't letting them in. And according to one source, uh, these these people in foreign military uniforms were standing there and and surrounding the chapel and weren't letting anyone in. And so this was scary and... I'd imagine yeah, if try- there was a bunch of soldiers surrounding our near story sites, I'd be pretty mad. Yeah, well, this is what was going on in the Czech Republic, and so naturally they responded pr- appropriately by uh, reporting the issue to Prague, mm-hmm. who then relayed the message to Warsaw and said, your troops are in our territory and kind of occupying it. Ooh. Could you, you know, Kinda. maybe move them? <laughs> and um, Poland was very compliant with this. They agreed to move them. They apologized profusely and they did say it was an accident. And yeah, the reason that Polish troops were not allowing them to come in is because uh, borders are very tight right now due to the coronavirus. So they, they thought they were guarding the Polish border, um, according to the Polish foreign ministry, which I'll get into a minute, but the Czech Republic was kind of suspicious of this because again, the border is a physical river. So mm-hmm. uh, Czech, the Czech Republic was very suspicious of, why did you cross the river? How did you make that mistake? (laughs) (laughs) And so... How did you get a whole platoon of troops across a river? Without realizing that it was the border. (laughs) And and so the Czech Republic said that they need a more clear explanation, although Poland said it was an accident. And of course, it does not seem like in any circumstance that there would actually be a war between Poland and the Czech Republic, but border friction was not unknown to these two nations. For example, mm-hmm. in 1919, Poland and the Czech Republic went to war just after World War One, so they just couldn't get enough. And following World War Two, they had some border disputes as well. Hmm. But as of now, the two countries maintain relatively friendly relations- relationship. They have a relatively friendly one. And Mm -hmm. they continue to get along with trade agreements, economic agreements, and so forth. Hmm. And so, although the Czech Republic has not accepted this explanation as um, uh, the full, the full idea, yeah, um, the the full story, 
yeah, the full story, they've still agreed to kind of let it go, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, but according to the Polish Foreign Ministry, it goes as follows, and this is a quote. The placement of the border post was a result of misunderstanding, not a deliberate act. It was corrected immediately, and the case was resolved, also by the Czech side. Mm. And so it's not really clear how long this occupation lasted. Uh, neither side will tell any major news sources like CNN or BBC, mm-hmm. who are very prevalent in those countries. They just won't tell them. Um, but we do know that it started in late May, and it, and we don't know exactly when it, how long it was or when it ended, but we do know that it happened. Um, wow. We're just finding out about it now because it's kind of went public. Huh. Wow. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how those relations turn out after this. Yeah. I don't think it'll be bad in the wrong, long run, though. No, because Poland said it was an accident. They did pull out and they did comply with the Czech Republic. So right. they didn't refuse to move their troops. Um, yeah. It's just a good sign that they weren't actually trying to take over Eastern yeah. Czech Republic. Maybe they just really wanted this tourist site. Yeah, it's a nice chapel. Maybe yeah. they wanted to go for a swim, and they forgot which, way, <laughs> yeah. which side to get out of the river. Maybe they did <laughs> want to go for a swim. Yeah. All right, moving on to Ethiopia. You're telling me that something's going on here. Why don't you enlighten me? Yeah, so, uh, of course. So there's three countries that mainly feed off the Nile River. That includes said Ethiopia and also mm-hmm. the countries of Sudan and Egypt. Mm-hmm. And what's going on, what has been happening recently is that Ethiopia has been constructing a dam to kind of consolidate the water in the Nile River, and it's worth 4.6 billion U.S. dollars to build. Wow. Yeah, and it's meant to bring electricity to the over 100 million people living in Ethiopia. And the government has pledged to do this because they want to modernize their country, their economy is booming, it's the second fastest growing economy, I believe, in Africa after Nigeria. And hmm. so, they, naturally, they kind of want to get with the times and modernize and actually give their people electricity. The issue here is that, well, Egypt also has over 100 million people, and they feed off the Nile River for food, you know, you know fishing, and for water, naturally. Mm-hmm. And that was what that's what caused so much friction. Sudan is kind of there. Um, they've expressed some favor for the dam, as controlling the flow of water would be nice for them. But overall, they've stayed kind of neutral. So Egypt does not want this dam. No, Egypt does not want this dam because they don't want Ethiopia to fill it up and take away uh, water from the Nile River. They fear it's going to, like, change the flow of the river? Change change the flow of the river, yes, and um, restrict the people who live in, especially Cairo, who feed off the water. Right. And so Ethiopia said that in the next few weeks, they're going to begin filling the dam with water. And Egypt has accused Ethiopia of not understanding, quote, the fundamental issues, quote, of what's going on. Saying that if Ethiopia begins to fill it now at a fast rate, millions of Egyptians could struggle to find drinkable water. Egyptians, of course, as I've already said, relied really heavily on this water. And this has caused some violence, but not that much between the two countries. And although it's been kept to a, mi- a minimum, both Cairo and Addis Ababa have made it clear that they'll put their interests above the others. And okay. then, like, Ethiopia said, we will build this dam. We are going to give our people electricity because they don't have it. And Egypt is prepared to defend um, their water sources. So the issue with this is that it's actually... Egypt is accusing uh, Ethiopia of trying to take control of the Nile River. And 85% of the Nile River in Ethiopia's defense... Um, originates in Ethiopia. So that's kind of why Ethiopia is like, why is Egypt getting all the water when it starts here? Right. Like, we have a right to build a dam. That's their argument, at least. Uh And Egypt is saying, well, 
come on. And <laughs> Ethiopia is, again, at the opposite. They're going back and forth because they both want this water, and the, uh, the, the river is slowly drying up, and there's just less and less to go around. It's a similar situation to Lake Chad, which is also drying up. Oh. And so the dam is now 70% complete, and tensions have not settled down at all. Ethiopia is continuing to build it. They're continuing to threaten to fill it up, and mm-hmm. Egypt is very They're not having it. Mm-mm. Get Mm-mm. that dam off my lawn. Well, I guess it's Ethiopia's lawn, so yeah. never mind. Well, <laughs> I guess. But um, So negotiations between the two countries have continued to stay at a standstill. Ministers from all countries, including Sudan, have said that although small deals have been made in the meetings, the overall problem has not been solved. Mm-hmm. And this, again, has caused a lot of friction, and we don't really know what's going to happen to the Nile River because there are literally over 200 million people trying wow. to gain access to it, which is a lot. And it's a lot of people. And for a lot of people, it's their livelihood. Exactly. There's fishing, there's food, agriculture. Drinkable water. Exactly. And it's very limited. Um, and so, the, again, they're both prepared to possibly go into armed conflict over this, which wow. is very scary. Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of what's going on in Ethiopia right yeah. now. Yeah. In Egypt. You answered my question. Thank you, Ian. So, let's go on to some other news going on around the world right now. So, currently in the southeastern Asian country of Laos, um, they have said that they are coronavirus-free, similar to the situation in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Um, After 59 days of no cases, uh, of no new cases, and the last patients being released recently from the hospitals, they can say this confidently. Ooh, good for them. Yeah, so the Prime Minister has said that this is a big breakthrough, and that this is a really good thing, and that... Though it has affected every country, big and small, mm-hmm. Lao, it's fighting hard. Mm-hmm. So you go to, Lao. Yeah, kudos to Lao. Seven million people. They all they they just stuck to it. Only seven million people. Yeah, and I believe wow they locked down in late March. So, which huh. seems, I I feel like that's kind of late um, compared to other countries around the world, especially yeah. since they're so close to China. But right, nevertheless, good for Lao. Good for Lao. Let's have a round of applause. <laughs> All right. So up next, we're going to jump over to the Middle East. Um, in the city of Tripoli, which is a city in northern Lebanon. It has... We talked about this last podcast, too. Little plug. Well, that was the city of Tripoli in Libya. The oh, city shit. of Tripoli in <laughs> Lebanon um, is, is a different city, also called Tripoli. Uh. And has been in the central bank of Tripoli has been burned down by the rioters. And there's a lot of reason for this, but the ma- the main reason is the mass inflation. Um, that 5,000 Lebanese pounds is equal to one U.S. dollar, which is the worst of the 21st century. Um, mm. This has caused mass poverty, over 50 percent, and lack of and lack of food in general, and electricity and water. And the rioters are burning things down, and they're assaulting police. Tear gas is often used. It's the riots are on similar, if not worse, levels to what's seen in the United States at mm-hmm. the height of. Uh, the George Floyd protests. Mm-hmm. And so because of this, there's been a large investment in Bitcoin across Lebanon as the people are trying to kind of avoid their not-so-good currency. Yeah, and... So they see Bitcoin as the alternative. Although Bitcoin is not the most stable currency, it's, as of now, seemingly more stable than the Lebanese pound. Maybe. So they're turning to that because, well... They can, and the Lebanese pound is obviously not doing them any good. Mm. 
But nevertheless, the government has been trying to interfere in Lebanon, and they've been investing more and more, and they've said they're going to physically lower the amount of Lebanese pounds equal to the U.S. dollar through deflation. And this has worked in the past, kind of, but uh, countries like China have often done this to keep their prices low so that other countries invest in them. But at the same time, the international community tends to condemn this type of behavior. But overall, it's not a very good situation in Lebanon right now. There, it, it, there's a lot of violence going on. It's, right. it's it, the country's definitely in deep turmoil, and yeah. you see um, groups like the like Hezbollah, which operates in southern Lebanon, starting to gain a lot of support. Mm. So it's a really tough situation. Anyways, moving over to another part of the Middle East, the United Arab Emirates and other Arab countries such as Jordan, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia have denounced the Israeli annexation plan, saying it would severely harm progress towards normalization with Israel. So in... And to clarify, what is the annexation plan? Yeah, so the West Bank, which is in, which is east of Israel and currently under military surveillance of Israel, and many refer to it as an occupation, um, is currently under the stages of being annexed. And... Starting July 1st, according to Benny Gantz, the leader of the Israeli parliament, um, it's going, certain parts of the West Bank are going to get their sovereignty extended to by Israel, as they refer to it as. However, most Arab countries refer to this as an annexation. Mm. And Israel says they're doing this for security reasons, but nevertheless, the Arab countries tend to put the uh, sovereignty of the Palestinian people first. Yeah. And naturally... Um, this would lessen the chance of a truce to state solution. However, Israel has said that, again, it's for security reasons and that they really cannot trust the Palestinian government and that they're in that what they're annexing are the Jewish villages inside the West Bank and settlements. And they're just mm-hmm. kind of making them territory since they're Israeli already. And furthermore, Israel, whenever they annex territory, offers Israeli citizenship to all Palestinians. Um, so that's nice. Yeah. So that's the Israeli argument for why it's not necessarily a bad thing. And they do claim that the province of Judea, which includes the West Bank, has always been given to Israel. It was given to Israel. Like the West Bank was given to Israel after, by the British. And so technically, legally speaking, it is theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, although uh, most countries in the world don't see it as that way. Except and if you States. want to find out more about the Israeli conflict, we do have a video all about it. Yep. You can click on our profile and go watch it. So, furthermore, we're going over to Canada, North America. Oh. So, a lot of controversy going on here because the indigenous native chief in Canada was violently arrested by Canadian police in in the Alberta province. And the main reason for this is that the chief was was complaining about being harassed by other cops um, because his license plate was expired and he kept getting pulled over. And so he went over to, so he got, he opened his window and told these cops, like can can I stop getting pulled over? And he he tried to get out of his car to talk to them, and the cops told him to stay in his car and not uh, get out. And that they talked to him from inside his car, but he got out anyways. And if so you're the cop, pulled over, don't get out of your car. Yeah, and so the cops went over and, and tackled him and punched him, and Ooh. and the images That's not good. the images were very very gory, and um yeah, it, it, he was clearly very beat up and. It wasn't feeling too good. Um, I would not feel and this good sparked, either. Yeah, and this has sparked a lot of outrage in Canada, especially because the police, the anti-police movement is so right. prevalent in Canada and the United States right now. So you see this as kind of fueling the fire. Only adds to the fire, exactly. Exactly. Mm. And so 
Well, uh, so Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, has called for a private investigation of this to try to figure out what's going on over here. Why was this guy beat up? Why was this such a harsh predicament? Um, and, yeah, that's all about what's going on in Canada Sorry, right now. Eh? So, time for what I think is extremely interesting. And I must agree with Josh on this one. Yep, so we're going to be talking about the fall of the Kingdom of Hawaii. Very, very interesting. So, if you didn't know, Hawaii was a monarchy before being annexed and then turned to a state by the United States. Uh, and they ruled themselves as an independent nation, always had really nice trade relations with the U.S., but slowly over time, the U.S. started to assert its influence, it built up mm-hmm. naval bases there because it was so strategic uh, of a location. Citizens opened up plantations, too. Yep, a lot of white settlers. Yep. By the time Hawaii um, became a U.S. state, there were way more um, white people there than actual natives yep. and Japanese people. Which is interesting. So, King David Kalakaua was the second to last monarch of Hawaii, and he was forced to cede much of his power to gunpoint by a group called the Honolulu Rifles. And this was a militant group which was made up of uh, mostly white settlers, um, and he was forced to sign it at gunpoint in what is known today as the Bayonet Constitution. Um, and the Honolulu Rifles were just looking to get more power inside the kingdom and increase their own influence and rights and, well, overall get white people there the chance to vote and so this treaty um, was reluctantly signed by the king so we didn't get shot in the head and it Mm. severely limited the power of the monarchy and it gave thousands of non-citizens foreigners you know white people the japanese rights to vote and took even in some cases took away that privilege for many workers who could have done so previously and so this really shifted the, the balance of power in hawaii towards the white settlers yeah exactly and well, this was very controversial. The natives were not happy about this. No. So, upon the death of Mr. David Kalakaua... Uh, excuse our Polynesian pronunciation. Yeah. Um, we have the last, the successor and the last queen slash monarch of Hawaii, Queen Latikulani. And she tried to restore some of the powers of the monarchy in response... And in response, Honolulu, the Honolulu Rifles, backed by U.S. Marines this time, stormed her palace and forced her to abdicate the throne, thus creating an interim government. And this mm-hmm. interim government ruled over Hawaii for about one and a half years. And during that time, you see, once again, natives losing their privileges and, and white this settlers. this is by the end of the 19th century, correct? Yep, this is in around 1890s, right before the Spanish-American War. And... This interim government, you see this, you see a lot more white people moving in and kind of becoming the majority, and again, they can vote. So the natives at this point are outvoted anyways, and it, and this at this point, the monarchy, monarchy is constitutional, but it still exists. Um, so in the fear of losing everything, the Hawaiian people, the natives, when I say Hawaiian people, turn to U.S. President Grover Cleveland for help, and uh, to everyone's surprise, he actually sympathized with them, and... Yep. He removed the treaty set forth by the, the, or the bill set forth by the Senate calling for the annexation of Hawaii. Um, this was long in the making. A lot of senators in Washington, D.C. were calling to mm-hmm. just annex this group of islands um, without their consent. And he actually removed it. He said, nope, we're not doing that. This is a Hawaii. It's a kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so there was that. But then Lily Cleani, 18 months later, so one and a half years after the interim government took over, led a revolution against the current rulers of Hawaii, or it was referred to as the Republic of Hawaii at the time. Um, and so she led a revolution against that. And 
To put it mildly, they were brutally suppressed and put down. And Lila Kaliana was jailed and tried for treason. And that was kind of the end of her. And so, after... Tough end. (laughs) Yeah, and so, despite over 95% of the native population in Hawaii not wanting to become a territory of the United States, pro-imperialism president William McKinley, who led the U.S. for the Spanish-American War, which, um, again, was in the late 19th century. Like, really, really late. 1898. Yeah, and... At the end, it, it, during the Spanish-American War, he signed the Newlands Resolution in 1898 and officially annexed the nation, extended U.S. sovereignty over it. It did not become a state, but it became a territory of the U.S. And, well, from there, it was no longer an autonomous nation of the monarchy. It's U.S. It was territory. Just, it was just U.S. territory. And, you know, us Americans, we hate kings. And so, there was no... I guess we do. No more monarchy there. And so the Hawaiian people didn't have a say in this, um, obviously. And uh, two thirds, all he, all that was needed was two thirds majority in the Senate in the Congress, which McKinley got. Yeah. And with that, Hawaii became a territory. Um, and so moving forward, Hawaii was officially made into a state in 1959. It became the 50th state and added that last star to our beautiful flag. And <laughs> with that, um, it became all 50 states and created the modern United States. And the reason that they became a state is because people kind of sympathize with the role that Hawaii played in World War II against the Japanese. You know, Pearl Harbor, they acted as a pretty much a buffer between mainland right. U.S. and Hawaii. To, it allowed the U.S. to launch their invasion of the Japanese. Yeah, and push them back all the way to the mainland. So mm-hmm. Hawaii played a really big role, and people thought that, well, they should just be considered a state since they did so much for us. Give them more privileges. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. It it is. And even today, we still have a huge, it is a pretty prevalent movement only in Hawaii, nowhere else, but it is prevalent in Hawaii and it's a movement, it's a political party, mostly among the natives that calls for the independence or at least autonomy of Hawaii from the United States. Um, And the political party points to, it's called the sovereignty, Hawaiian sovereignty movement. And it points to the large homelessness and poverty rates among what is left of the native population mm-hmm. and views what is happening today as a really, really long military o- occupation of the country. Yeah. And so they, again, it doesn't really seem like it's going to happen because, again, there are way more white people at this point in Hawaii. There's, right. Um, there's about 1.9 million people in Hawaii. Yeah, it's sad, but uh, native Polynesian culture is definitely... And it has been on decline. Yes, it has it's been. pretty but, sad, but for besi- sure. Yeah, but besides calling for the independence of Hawaii, which is likely not going to happen, sadly, um, for the Polynesian people who want it, um, besides that, uh, they work on other things like supporting the and promoting the Polynesian culture and mm-hmm. trying to res- keep the language alive, um, adding to the extra Duolingo course. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did the first few levels. Yeah, and... <laughs> Um, just doing everything to keep it alive. So it's it's also like a cultural thing that people join besides also calling for the, yeah. um, the independence of the cultural nation. Cultural resurgence, so to speak. Exactly. So, yeah, that's all about what we have about Hawaii. If you are interested in that, please feel free to DM us. Um, Google it online. It's really interesting. You can go into a lot of detail about Hawaii and um, what it went through because it is really it's not a very known part even among the american people it's mm-hmm. it's just kind of a forgotten piece of our history and we thought we'd shed some light on it yes we did yep but at last we must move on to our polls that have been on our instagram page our polls so if you are interested in submitting a poll 
um, idea or voting on our polls or commenting on them, you can do so on our Instagram. Yep. Um, it's called Politics mm-hmm. 1001. Search and while you're up. at it, why don't you just give us a quick little follow? Yep. Follow us. Feel free to DM us. We love talking to you guys. Yeah. And as always, let's just jump into these polls. Our first question is, should countries in Afghanistan negotiate with the Taliban? 39% of you have said yes, while 61% of you had said no. So, Ian, why would people say that countries deployed in Afghanistan should negotiate? Well, as we know, this war has been going on an awful long time, and they believe that too many lives have been needlessly lost, and it's important to make peace so they can return stability to the country and finally get a settlement that benefits everyone and stops the needless killing and needless war. Yep. This is the longest war in U.S. history, and people Mm -hmm. are trying to bring an end to it and bring the U.S. troops home. This has been one of the biggest pitches of Donald Trump, U.S. president, Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, war theory and strategy. And a lot of people at home just want to see their troops brought home. Yeah, they don't think we have, a lot of people don't think we have any business there. Mm-hmm. Um, any country deployed has any business there, specifically yeah. NATO, because, yep. well, it's Afghanistan and not Europe or the United States. Yeah. And so that is a main argument for yes, but 61% of you, the majority, have said no. And so why would people say this? Well, they see the Taliban as terrorists, which they largely are. And the 61% who said no say, don't negotiate with terrorists. We need to eliminate them because they'll only cause problems. They'll only cause death. And they see if these NATO countries leave, more violence is going to occur. Yep. And they point to the egregious human rights abuses committed by the Taliban. And mm. they furthermore say that just by um, continuing the war in Afghanistan, you're keeping, you're spreading the resources of the, the terrorist group. Um, you're keeping them spread thin. And by doing that, you prevent the Taliban from carrying out attacks outside of Afghanistan because they just will never have a resource to do that if they're constantly fighting troops within their own country. So you're kind of restricting them in a way. Right. Um, which is the main argument for not is that um, you can never actually eliminate terrorists, but you can keep them at bay. And right. that's why we should keep troops in Afghanistan. Right. Yep. So those are the main arguments for yes and no. Our second poll is... Is it possible to power the entire world on renewable energy? 61% of you have said yes, and 39% of you have said no. It's flipped. That's kind of cool. That is pretty cool. Why do people say yes to that, Ian? Well, the scientific community they see is largely in agreement that renewables can power the world if enough time, innovation, and energy is put into them. Uh, They think that... Either the government needs to start acting or private companies should invest and make renewable energy reliable. Yep. And they want to turn investment away from the oil industries. And they say if the millions and billions of dollars going towards the industry was uh, put on a different path and invested instead in renewables, then yes, it would be possible. And as Ian said, a large portion of the scientific community agrees. And a lot of nations have had success with renewable energies. And there's also the nuclear option, which is controversial, but it is renewable. Yep. And though expensive at first, once set up, it can be very, very efficient as long as you have a place to get rid of the nuclear waste. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so, well, 61% of you have said yes, 39% of you have said no, so why would people say no, Ian? 
Well, renewables are wicked expensive, so it'd be really hard to get everybody on board with spending all this money on renewable energy. They don't see it as feasible. Sure, maybe first world nations can afford it, but can third world countries? It seems unlikely. Yeah, exactly. They don't think it's an efficient use of time. And maintenance is also extremely Mm -hmm. annoying and um, can become very expensive as well. Yeah, it is true. Non-renewable sources of energy are currently the most effective source of energy. Can we just change just like that? Yeah, and people might also point to the fact that um, they're not very reliable in terms of there might not be wind or there might not be sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of, it's kind of a, a gam- you're gambling here when you're saying that we're going to put all our trust in renewable sources because what if they don't work? Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a, a, you know, a week of rain, um, that could prove difficult for powering a nation like the United States with over 300 million people. Right. Yeah. Where do you put all the solar panels or windmills? Definitely an important discussion to be having right now. Indeed. Well, you know what's another important discussion, Ian? Uh, what is it, Josh? Tell me. Our last poll, Can Communism Work? 23% of you have said, yeah, communism can work. Well, mm-hmm. 77% of you have said no. So, Ian, why don't you enlighten me? Why can communism work? Well, Josh, I think to understand the people who said yes, you need to understand where they're coming from. They see... Other alternatives, mainly capitalism, as a failure. It has led to poverty, inequality, and they say communism is the best solution to tackle this. And when the other side says, well, this hasn't worked before. Look at the Soviet Union. Look at China. They go, hold on a second. That wasn't actually communism. That was just authoritarianism. And... If we do communism properly, democratically mainly, and everybody's on board, that's a possibility of success and could be a stable solution and alternative and lead to a more happy society. So that is what they say. Exactly. And they may also point to the large wealth gap in society. And again, like Ian said, the the capitalism has treated some people very unfairly and uh, different ethnicities they may believe are... Um, not equal standing as, well, in communism it is an idea of a utopia, and your race does not matter. Everyone's the same. And so with that, 77% of you have said no. So, Ian, why did 77% of people say communism can't work? Well, they believe that, as I said earlier, for the other side, they point to past failures, and they say hold on a second, people have said yes, that was communism, and it did not work. Why? Because the theory of communism goes against human nature, goes against the ideas of of com- competition, and they say capitalism has led to some of the most important innovations and has uplifted everybody in society. Yeah, and they point to the po- the world poverty rate in 1800 is approximately um, 90% of people, 
And then they say that as of the 21st century, you know, post-industrial revolution, post both world wars, the pov- world poverty rate is now 10%. Mm-hmm. And so they attribute that mainly to the introduction of true capitalism into society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with that, that is all of our polls. That is all of our content for today. Oh, no. So if you enjoyed this video. If you did. Please feel free to leave a like. Share. And subscribe. And hit that bell icon. Yep, exactly. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave a review. It means so much to us. Exactly. That is all we ask for. And with that, we hope you guys have an amazing day. We hope you enjoyed our content. And with that, goodbye. Goodbye.